Let's pray. Father God, we are so excited uh, that we can gather one more time in your presence. Uh, as the song has reminded us in worship, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. And God, we're just, we're just crying out to you to flood this place with your presence. We, God, ask that your word would do something powerfully in our lives today. God, if there's an area where we're to be challenged, God, let that be so in our hearts. God, if there's an area, God, that you just want to encourage us in, God, let us feel the warmth of your encouraging embrace. God, I pray that the word would come swiftly and with power, that it would transform lives by the power of the gospel. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray and give you thanks. Amen. If I had to give this, this sermon a title, I would, I would call it something very practical. It's, it's three tools for building strong community. Three tools for building strong community. A few weeks ago, the Houston area was, was pounded by rain, which led to some pretty heavy flooding in my area of town, in, in the Cypress area. Uh, and amongst all the devastation and all the property damage and all of the, the mess that came along with that, something positive came out of that for me, and that was my daughter, who was a kindergartner, was out of school for a week. So I got to spend a little bit of extra time with with Chloe. So we got an invitation from someone to go and watch a movie on that Monday. And when I told Chloe, I said, hey, we're going to the movies. Normally she gets really excited about the popcorn and the candy and things like that. But when I told her we're going to see the Jungle Book, she was like, oh, wow. You know, all my friends have seen the Jungle Book. I'm, I'm really excited. So we go to see the Jungle Book. And so I got to spend like an hour and a half with this cool little guy named Mowgli. Now, if you haven't seen Mowgli, uh, the movie Jungle Book, Mowgli is the main character. He's this little cute, adorable little guy. And in the movie, Mowgli has been abandoned by his parents, or his dad, really, you kind of learn later, in the jungle. And a panther, of all creatures, finds little Mowgli, and he ends up taking him to the wolf pack, and the wolf pack ends up raising him. So there's talking animals and all kinds of crazy stuff that wouldn't really happen in real life, but my daughter is actually, she's loving the movie. But something happened, and I'm not going to spoil the movie for you, but I, mean, I do have to tell you this. So there is this phenomenon that happened in the jungle, and this large body of water during a drought receded to the point where this rock that they called the Peace Rock was exposed. And there is this motto in the jungle that if ever the peace rock were to be exposed, that there was a truce in the jungle. So now all the animals could come together and enjoy community with one another without fear of their lives. So you had friends and foes, predator and preys all standing around this peace rock with no problem. So you got lions hanging out with giraffes. And if you're a giraffe, you know, you're probably a little bit timid as you're going up to the peace rock. Like, is this real? Is the lion really going to kind of abide by this thing. You've got panthers with deers. You've got snakes with rabbits. You have all types of animals that ordinarily do not get along. And everybody kind of followed the motto, and nobody really fought, and everybody got along around this peace rock. But as I said before, this is a movie. <laughs> there is nowhere in God's creation that anything like that would ever happen, except for the church of Jesus Christ. So the question that we're going to answer today and just wrestle with is, how do we live life in community with people, but then also people that we have more out of common with than we have in common with? So we're going to go ahead and jump into the text in the book of Acts, 
chapter 17, verse 1 through 9. I'm going to read this, and I'm going to read a passage from 1 Thessalonians, and then we're going to just dive in. Chapter, Acts chapter 17, verse 1. If you, if you don't have it, I'll give you a few seconds to find it. In the church I grew up in, we used to say, say amen when you found it. And if you don't have it, just say, wait. (laughs) All right, Acts 17, verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. And Paul writes, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Now, you're probably asking yourself, what do these two passages of Scripture have to do with anything? How are they related? Well, when we get to the book of Acts, and in Acts 17, we're going to get the canvas by which the passage from 1 Thessalonica is going to emerge. See, Paul is doing what he normally does. He's passing through Macedonia, and he finds a key city, a key city by the name of Thessalonia. Thessalonica, I'm sorry, it's the book Thessalonians. Thessalonica, and in Thessalonica, it's a key port city. This means that you're having all different kinds of people come in and out. But the beautiful thing is if there's a church there, a gospel spreading, a gospel-centered church, the gospel has a way to travel to the outermost parts of the world. And so Paul sets up a church in Thessalonica, and he does like he normally does. He goes into the synagogue, and he begins to reason with Jews through the Scriptures. The Bible says that he had three Sundays there before things started to get a little bit out of hand. We, we, we read that as he's doing this, some people follow him, some Jews follow him, some devout Greeks follow him, and some leading women follow him, but then all of a sudden the Jews get jealous. So they get jealous, and they go into the city, and they form a lynch mob, and they go to the place where they think Paul is staying, and they go in there, and they turn up everything. They're looking for Paul. They can't find Paul and Silas, so they take Jason. He's the guy that is part of the church and is excited about Jesus, and they drag him into the town square, and they tell the authorities, look, these people are talking about this new king named Jesus. They're in violation of what Caesar's teaching. We need to do something about it. Well, the town council, they're not happy about it, but they don't necessarily want to get involved, so they make Jason pay a fine, and they let him go. 
Now, while all of this is going on, Paul and Silas get word that their life is in danger. So they sneak out of Thessalonica and they head west 42 miles to Berea. And that's where the story stops. And I'm like, man, this is like the, the end of a Shonda Rhyme season. It's like I'm watching a show and it just ends. Like, but what happened to the church at Thessalonica? Like, we, we know that they get started and, and Paul has to leave, but the story ends. What, what happened? So then when we pick up in 1 Thessalonians, it's like the first episode of season two. We now realize what happens to the church. So Paul is a very concerned parent. You have, you have to understand what's going on. He just planted a church. He had a little bit of time to kind of get them together, to kind of grow them up, and then he had to leave town. And so like a concerned parent, Paul is, is dealing with this tension. Should I, should I go back and check on them or should I stay away because my, my life is in danger if I go, but I want to go, but should I stay? And you, you see this tension in chapter two. He, he doesn't know what to do. So finally, he says, when, when we could stand it no more, I sent Timothy to go check on him. Now, you know, Timothy is Paul's little protege. Timothy goes to Thessalonica, comes back to Paul, and he brings, them, he brings Paul a very encouraging report. And he says, he says, hey, man, these guys are killing it. They are doing, I mean, they are doing a phenomenal job in continuing to grow in the gospel, and they're doing well with community. I mean, they are killing it. And the reason why I want to highlight this church today is because I see a lot of similarities between the bridge and the church at Thessalonica. See, the church is a young church, just like this church here. But it's a thriving, healthy church. And Paul, if Paul were here today... Paul would be excited about it. He would, be, he would be liking you guys on social media. He would be tagging you guys and stuff. I mean, he would be posting. He would say, hey, look at what the bridge is doing. They're really, they're really up to something great. But there's another thing that, uh, another similarity between this church and I believe the church of Thessalonica, Thessalonica, I'm sorry, is that they are dealing with a city that is increasingly opposed to the gospel. Yeah, they're, they're living in a place where it's actually hostile to follow Jesus. And I believe that we're living in a country, in a state, even in a city, even in an area that become, is becoming increasingly opposed to the church of Jesus Christ. A recent Barna survey said that the majority of Americans now believe that followers of Jesus Christ are either irrelevant or extremists. So there's similarities between Thessalonica and Houston, and in particular, the Bridge Church. But there's something that we just kind of glossed over that I have to highlight in order for us to really understand what Paul writes in chapter 5. See, in verse 4 of Acts 17, he said, some of them were persuaded. Well, who are them? Those would be the Jews in the temple, in the synagogue. But then he also said a, a group of devout Greeks also followed him. Then he also says, then a group of prominent women followed him. Hmm. Now, now if, 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 if you were to read this maybe 1,900 years ago, this would sound like a bad, the start of a bad joke, right? This, this, is, this is like a Southern Baptist preacher, a rabbi, and an Asian businesswoman walk into a bar, okay? <laughs> now, 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 you know, this is either going to be a really bad joke or something, something really crazy is about to go down. And that is what is happening right here in verse 4, we have this, this strange, eclectic group of people coming together around Jesus, but each is coming with baggage, cultural baggage, ideological baggage, 
familial baggage, all kinds of baggage. And now we have to figure out how are we going to grow and thrive in a community of gospel believing people when we have such different backgrounds. Bridge Church, as you guys continue to press into the gospel mandate of sharing the gospel, as you guys continue to lean into the gospel mandate of spreading seed in our community, in our city liberally, a beautiful thing is going to happen here. One, people are going to respond to the message and they're going to come to this church. That's a beautiful thing. But a very scary thing is going to happen at the same time. And that is people are going to come to this church. The reason why that can be scary is because then the church now becomes more trail mix than it does a bag of Cheerios. And so now we have differences in, in politics and differences in the way we view money and differences in all kinds of areas, but we have a mandate to get along. So how do we live in community with people that have more out of common with us than they do in common? And Paul is going to give us three useful tools to answer that question, which all are going to point to the need that you and I have to get out of our comfort zone to enter into someone else's. And the first tool Paul is going to give us in Thessalonians chapter 5 is to admonish the unruly. Admonish the unruly. Now, the word unruly here uh, means lazy or, or idle, and it has kind of this, this military implication of, of someone who has abandoned their post or someone who is AWOL. Now, if you're familiar with the military, which I'm not, so if I mess this up, just grab me after service and correct me so I don't preach this again somewhere else and mess it up. There is a penalty for you going AWOL. To abandon your post is to go AWOL, and when I looked it up, the, the minimum sentence for going AWOL is like 30 days in military prison and then a dishonorable discharge. And the, the, the penalties can be very severe for someone abandoning their post. So what Paul is urging the brethren and the sisters to do, they're saying, hey, when you see someone who has abandoned their post in life, in ministry, you need to call them out and you need to stir them to action. That's what admonish means, stir them to action. Now, I don't know if you're anything like me, but this is hard for me. And I'm, I'm a pastor. But this is hard for me. You know, I, I typically don't like to confront people with hard things because I know how it feels when people confront me. It hurts. You know, it's not always what I want to hear, but, but I do appreciate those that love me enough to correct me when I'm wrong. Now, now this is going to require real sacrifice to give someone some feedback because you might lose a friendship. You know, that's, that's our greatest. We may lose a friend if we give correct feedback. Now watch this. I was listening to a podcast um, and it was about the art of a selfie. Now I'm, I'm trying to get more technologically astute. So that's why I kind of listen to these kind of things. And it, they interviewed a group of freshman girls, high school girls, and they said they were talking about like just the art of a selfie. And so I, I don't do much of that, but I'm like, maybe I can learn something. So one of the girls said, this is what she does. This is her, this is her formula. If anybody's taking notes, here's, here's a formula for taking a selfie. She said she would take a selfie and she would send it to like five of her friends, or maybe four, I don't know, but a small group of her friends. And she would ask the friends, hey, is this something that I should post on my Instagram account? What she was really asking for was, can you give me some feedback so that I can be effective in what I post to the world? 
She didn't view her friends confronting her about a bad picture as, criti as criticism. She viewed it as an act of love. Like, of course, it's love for you to give me feedback before I get out here and do something silly. And I think that's what Paul is calling us to. It's, it's not that I should be afraid of, of criticism or be afraid of getting in someone's personal space. Paul is saying it's the ultimate act of love to help someone get back into line and being a good steward of the, of the money and the resources and time that God has entrusted us with. But it's not easy. And it's going to require, if we're going to do this well, it requires me to leave my comfort zone and to enter into someone else's. Now, the second thing that Paul tells us is to encourage the faint-hearted. To encourage the faint-hearted. Now, the faint-hearted, that, that word literally means short on soul. It, it, it means that the courage tank has, has gone down to E. It, it's empty. I, I'm, I'm out of courage. I've been, I've, been, I've been trying to follow Jesus. I have marital issues. My husband won't cooperate. I've been faithful. I've been trying to do the right things, but he's not cooperating, and I'm just ready to throw in the towel. I, I, I'm single. I, I'm, I'm trying to live godly. I'm trying to be celibate. All my girlfriends are getting married. I've been a bridesmaid 10 times. My turn's not coming. I have no prospects. I'm ready to throw in the towel and just live like I want to live. I'm tired of my boss. He's a jerk. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm just ready to throw in the towel. I'm ready to, to, to just throw in the towel on trying to live godly. And Paul is saying, look, when you find these people in your community whose courage tank is empty, they're ready to throw in the towel, we have to be those that fill up that courage tank. We have to encourage those whose courage tank is empty. I believe you guys are probably great at this, especially the women, but but for men, this is probably pretty tough because first we have to admit that the courage tank is empty. Now, that is not a very manly thing to admit. Hey, man, my, 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 my tank is empty. Can you, can, you, can you fill me up? That's a hard, you know, typically when, when I'm not feeling very courageous, I try to do something courageous to, to make myself feel like I want to go jump out of an airplane or I want to, you know, climb a mountain. or something. I want to do something that makes me feel courageous when inside I'm ready to throw in the towel. But I want to turn your attention to the, to the book of Job Real quick, I don't want to keep you guys here long, but I just got to read this. This is, this is beautiful. See, in Job chapter 2, there are a group of men that come and rally around their brother who seems like he's ready to throw in the towel. You guys know, or perhaps you know about the, the Job, in the book of Job in the Old Testament. This guy, I mean, he just, he just has a rough go of it. He's a very godly man. He's following Jesus. He loses his family. He loses his money. His business. He loses so much. And if anybody, if we would justify anybody throwing in the towel on God, we'd be like, hey, I get it. If Job wants to quit, hey, he, he can quit because he's, he's been through a lot. But his friends do something that, that I absolutely love. And these are men. And so it like really has extra meaning to me. So now here's what it says in verse 11 of chapter 2. It says, now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that came upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. They made an appointment together to come to him, to show him sympathy, and to comfort him. Oh, you got, oh, man, y'all like, this is pretty cool. Um, so first of all, they heard that he had a problem. So they're actually, they're, they're, they're good enough friends where, he, where they know something's going on. But then they said, hey, we got to go to seek out Job and to comfort our buddy. So that means, look, I got I to take off a week of work. Now, I, now, I had planned to use my vacation 
for a trip to, you know, Bermuda, but now I got to take off a week of work to go hang out with Job because he's going through stuff. It's, it takes some sacrifice. Then, if we, if we keep going, they made an appointment together. Now, when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him, and they raised their voices, and they wept. So not only do I have to sacrifice time away from my family, I have to take some vacation days to go visit Job. They said now they have to, they empathized with Job. It wasn't that they just saw that he's going through a lot, but it actually, it hurt them. So much so that they wept with him. That's empathy. They tore their robes and they sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And if you can give me the last. And then they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for, that they, for they saw that his suffering was great. What a picture of encouragement. That these, this group of guys would, would leave behind their families, their jobs, a great personal sacrifice, would come in, empathize with their brother, and they would sit down with him for seven days and seven nights to bring him comfort. To me, this is a beautiful picture of what it looks like to encourage the faint-hearted, to encourage those who are short of soul. So Paul tells us, first, we need to admonish the unruly among us, but we also need to encourage the faint-hearted. And the third tool he's going to give us is to help the weak. Now, now this, the, the idea you have to get in mind when you hear this is, is this, this is like a new believer, whose legs are, are, are too wobbly to, to stand effectively on the Word of God. And, and I'll even say there's times, even if you're not a new believer, where there's sometimes the, where you're growing in the Word, and sometimes your legs are too wobbly to, to stand effectively on the Word of God. I remember when my youngest daughter, Kendall, was, was learning how to walk, uh, she liked to eat a lot. I mean, she was, a, she was a chunky baby, and she was always trying to eat. And so her high chair was like her favorite place to be. But her high chair had wheels on them. And sometimes we would take the brakes off the wheels if we wanted to move her high chair around, give her a different view of, you know, whatever she, you know, whenever she was eating, give her a different view. So she was learning how to walk. And this high chair was like her go-to thing. And I remember watching her one day. She was, she was, you know, doing, you know, the baby walk thing. And she was getting ready to fall. And so, of course, she sees her high chair and she reaches out and grabs the high chair, but the brakes weren't on it. And so the high chair starts sliding and she starts sliding and she falls. Why? Because she wasn't able to, to walk on her own, and she was going to grab the first thing that seemed comfortable to her to help her try to stand. This is what happens with new believers. This is what happens when we become weak in our faith. It's, it's, we're trying to stand, and if, if we're unable to stand, we grab onto something that feels familiar to us. Maybe it's an old addiction. Maybe it's, a, it's an old habit. Maybe it's a, 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 a what do you call, a, a friend with benefits. And we grab onto that person because we're not able to stand on the Word of God effectively. And Paul is saying, no, no, no. When, when, that, when, when we have new believers among us, we have to be there available to them where they can grab onto us instead of grabbing onto something familiar that may ultimately cause them to fall. I was blessed enough to have this. When I kind of rededicated my life to Christ when I was living in Atlanta, I had a guy who did this for me. And at first, I thought it was kind of weird. Because he would call me and it's like, hey, man, what are you doing? What are you thinking? What are you? I'm like, man, who asked these kinds of questions? And he was, but he, what he was doing was he was helping me, trying to, trying to understand what was going on in my life so he could help me stand on the Word of God where I would have just done whatever I wanted to do if I were, because I was too weak at the time. And over time, he would, he, would, he would spend time with me. He would 
come to my house and pray with me. He would take, off, take time off of work to, to visit me if I was struggling with something. And this is what Paul is saying. We have to not only admonish the unruly and encourage the faint-hearted, but we have to help the weak among us. I want to challenge you guys today, Bridge. As you think about helping the weak and the new believers among us, one indication of our evangelistic fervor is whether or not there are any people weak among us. See, if we're spreading the seed of the gospel liberally, we should have to do this an awful lot. If it's real comfortable for us and and we don't have to get out of our comfort zone to help the weak, then it probably means that we're not doing evangelism like Jesus wants us to. So Paul gives us these three tools to help us to have strong relationships in community, but that's not all he says. He says, at the end of this, he says, go back one slide for me. He says, be patient with them all. Be patient with them all. Now, the other three things, those were all action verbs. Those are things we do. But this word here, be patient, to be is a, is a, is a verb of existence. This is just the posture that we have as believers. He says, be patient with all. Now, that word patient, patient means long-suffering long suffering. So I started thinking about this. I was like, man, in any of my relationships, do I feel like I'm suffering? Does there feel like there's any suffering in my relationships? And and the, the truth of the matter is very seldom do I feel like there's any suffering going on. And what that lets me know is that I'm too comfortable in my circle. Where I don't, there's, there's nothing that makes me feel like I have to suffer and definitely not suffer long. But here's, here's what I want you guys to get out of this. When we start talking about establishing community, what we must remember is that community is a contact sport. It's a contact sport. It's more, it's more basketball and football than it is tennis and baseball. There's contact in community. But the problem with a contact sport is there's a good chance of injury. You guys saw Steph Curry go down. You saw uh, uh, Blake Griffin tear his quad if you're a basketball fan. You saw Chris Paul break his hand. There's a chance of injury when we do contact sport. And the same is true when we're trying to build community. There's a chance that we can get injured when we're admonishing the unruly. There's a chance that we can be injured when we're encouraging the faint-hearted because maybe they don't appreciate our efforts. There's a chance that we can get injured when we help the weak. But Paul's saying you got to take one for the team and you got to get back out there and play. Injured and all. And that's what it means to to suffer long is to take one for the team. Get out there. Continue to encourage. Continue to admonish. Continue to help, even when it feels like our efforts are in vain. But if you guys are anything like me, you're you're willing to suffer a little bit, but your suffering will be pretty short. Hey, I'm going to call you a couple times when you're you're feeling weak. I'm going to be there for you. But if you don't listen to my advice after a couple times, I'm going to stop calling you. I'm going to encourage you, but after about seven days, man, you need, to, you need to get on it, man. That's enough time for you to get your tank filled back up. Man, I'm going, to, I'm going to call you back to your post a couple times, but after that, man, it's just up to you and Jesus. I'm, I, don't want, I don't want any part of that. I'm willing to suffer short, but Paul is saying, no, 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 we have to suffer long if we're going to really create strong gospel community. And it's also here that if we do this well, this, this will allow us to do the next verse well. Because in the next verse it says, see to it that no one repays evil for evil. 
Well, if I'm patient with you, if I'm suffering long with you, if I'm, if I'm injured but I'm getting back in the game with you, then I'm not looking to repay evil with evil. And then watch this. Paul puts a bow on the whole thing. He says, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. See, what he's saying here is we have to want to see others win more than we want ourselves to win. Let me, let me say that again. We have to want to see others win more than we want to see ourselves win. Now, that's, that's, that's a difficult concept for us to grasp in, the West, in a Western society that, 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 that the, it, the family is more important than the individual, that others winning is more important than my win. But this is the gospel. This is the gospel. Jesus was fine. He was, he was in heaven with God. He was fine. But he came down, died, Philippians 2, came down, died on the cross, served as a servant. Why? Because he wanted us to win more than himself. And so if you and I are going to follow Christ and be disciples of Jesus Christ, we have to cultivate a heart that we want others to win more than we want ourselves to win. This is the key to gospel community. So why does it matter? Why does it matter? Does Jesus even say that this matters? Does Jesus say it matters? Absolutely he does. He says it in John 17. He says this in his prayer, the high priestly prayer. He says that they may become perfectly one. Who is they? His followers. That they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. What Jesus is saying there is our community within the church is a billboard to the world that Jesus came and he died and he rose again and he wants a relationship with the lost. He's saying our lives and our interactions within the church are a walking, living, breathing billboard for the gospel. So it absolutely matters because we are a witness to the world when people who ordinarily may not have a lot in common can come together around the worship, the work, and the person of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. I want to conclude with how I started, with the Jungle Book. So when we left the movie, you know, I got all caught up in it. I love the movie. I'm not a Disney guy, but I'm going to be more of a Disney guy because they have great sermon illustrations. And, and as I walked out of the movie, I was like, okay, you know, talking animals, you know, people talking to animals, you know, it's probably not going to happen. A truce happening in the jungle, that is probably not going to happen, especially around the Peace Rock. But as I went out and I'm thinking, sermon illustration, where's the sermon illustration? Where's the sermon illustration? I started thinking that Jesus is the Peace Rock. Jesus is our Peace Rock. And, and not only does Jesus come together to allow us to have community with people that may not be like us, or even people that are very much like us but get on our nerves. He allows us to do that in community. But the great thing about the peace rock of Jesus is that he came to repair a broken relationship between God the Father and mankind. And Jesus, being the, the a minister of reconciliation, he came, he suffered, he died a criminal's death, he rose on the third day, why? So that he could bridge the gap, no pun intended, 
between mankind and a gracious and loving God who wants to give us everything. So I want to pray with us, guys. One, that the gospel reality of what Paul is teaching in the text would be real in our hearts today. And two, that we would be about the missional mandate of spreading seed liberally in our communities and in our cities. And thirdly, when that happens, that we would keep these tools in mind because we're going to need them as we start trying to build gospel community as this church grows and becomes more of a gospel influence in our city. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for these, your people, who have come out to hear your word, to fellowship with one another, to worship Jesus. God, we thank you for your word. Your word is powerful, it's encouraging, it's challenging, and we thank you for that. God, I pray for every person here. God, if there's anyone here that doesn't know Jesus, this idea of of, of reconciling a broken relationship between God and man, if that's a foreign concept, God, I pray that you would allow them to get connected in a way where this could be explained and they could grow in this and understand this. God, if there's anyone here who is struggling with this idea of community and leaving their comfort zone to enter into another's, God, I pray that you would just work on their hearts today. God, we all want to be people who are diligent about the work that you have set out for us to do. And we know this is only possible if we embrace the hard work of gospel community. God, for those of us, myself included, who it's kind of difficult to leave our comfort zones, God, I pray that you would continue to nudge us. Nudge us into those uncomfortable spaces, not not just for the sake of being uncomfortable, but for the sake of the kingdom. That someone else's win would be more important than our own. And lastly, I just pray for this church. God, I'm so excited and encouraged by this church. God, I pray that you would continue to bless this church, continue to add to their number, continue to allow them to be a shining light in the community of Montrose. We thank you and we honor you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.